If you have just now joined us, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we have been in the middle of a sermon series called Flawed Yet Faithful, where we are looking at the life and ministry of Peter. And I don't know if you know this about Peter, but Peter was an incredibly faithful disciple. He loved Jesus, and he was often quick to act and slow to think, and it was incredible. Uh, But with that came a lot of his flaws, because he often ended up with his foot in his mouth. He often ended up looking uh, a little silly. Uh, So we're trying to to use this, uh, the life of Simon Peter, uh, to kind of prove a few things. And what we want to prove with that is that while we may fail, we may fall, we may doubt, we may embarrass ourselves, we, and turn our backs on our friends, we can still be restored and remain a faithful follower of the way of Jesus. So that's that reminder that we have gone over each and every week that this is what the point of the sermon is. We want to look at Peter and realize that we're in good company. Um, and we have seen this play out very much in the preceding weeks. If you haven't been following along, if you haven't heard the sermon series, I recommend go back and watch it, uh, or listen to it rather. While this sermon will stand on its own, the grandiose, the gravity of it is best understood in the previous uh, few weeks. Because as Pastor Kevin said a couple weeks ago, we are kind of looking at the life of Peter into two different categories. The first half of Peter's story, if you will, will be Peter as a disciple. And the second half would be Peter as a church church elder. So we're kind of looking at these two parts of Peter's lives, and we are kind of literally at the transitional point from Peter, a disciple, to Peter, the church elder. So let's refresh our memory. In case you haven't been following along, I'm going to give you the cliff notes, the bird's eye view of what's been happening. Uh, We kicked off this series by talking about the call of Peter, how Jesus came to Peter while he was fishing. He called him out of the life of a fisherman to become a fisher of man. And we continue to watch his story as he tried to walk out his faith by literally walking on water uh, right before he doubted and ended up sinking like the stone that he is. From there, we uh, also talked about how Peter, his cornerstone declaration of faith, saying that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is the one to come, quickly to be squashed by him being called Satan for doubting Jesus and rebuking Jesus. Of course, that wasn't the end of Peter's story. He had his chance at redemption again, where him and a couple of other disciples went with Jesus up onto a mountain. Transfiguration breaks out. Jesus becomes super shiny, glowy guy, and uh, Moses pops up. Elijah's there, and it looks like Peter's going to have this chance to finally have a, uh, a good moment. And he quickly says, hey, let's build a holiday inn and kind of ruins the entire thing because that's uh, kind of what we see. He missed the importance of the spiritual torch, the Old Testament becoming the New Testament, right? You kind of missed that completely. Uh, but hey, that was the story of Peter. Day after day, moment after moment, he lived out that flawed faith to the max. But if you were here last week, last week hit a little different. Because Peter, at, up to that point, had always seemed to flaw, fail forward. His flaws made him fall towards Jesus. He had a very flawed understanding and a very flawed set of expectations, but he was always in pursuit of Jesus. So when it came to walking on water, Peter sank as he was walking out to Jesus. When he was being called Satan by Jesus, it's because Jesus was rebuking him for not understanding why he was was saying what he was said. 
On the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't grasp the importance of the moment, but he tried to figure it out anyways. But each of the flaws, each of his fumbles, each of his misses along the way always seemed to take him closer to Jesus. He tried to be more like Jesus. And um, the history of the church is filled with flawed people failing towards Jesus. But last week, last week, Peter didn't fail towards Jesus. Last week, what we saw was Peter turning his back on Jesus. He was very much flawed, but for the first time in his story, he was anything but faithful. So if you weren't here last week, we talked about the Last Supper and ultimately Jesus' arrest. We talked about how Peter's over-the-top response when Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. He said, no, not my feet, Lord, you can never. And he's like, I have to. And he said, then wash all of me, right? He went over the top, this beautiful, you know, this grandiose display. And then as Jesus goes from there, he starts to explain, hey, one of you is going to betray me. So then, of course, Peter has this most famous response in Matthew 26, verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on you on account of, uh, if, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Of course, Jesus then quickly counters and says, not only will you fail me, not only will you turn your back on me, before today is over, you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. We talked in length about how Peter was ready to kill for Jesus but he wasn't ready to die for him. When swords turned to crosses is when Peter turned his back on Jesus. We left Peter as he, right after he has denied Jesus three times and Jesus makes eye contact with him and Peter is sitting there weeping. And we left it there, right? That was the redemption story. You're supposed to end on a high note. You're always supposed to end happy, right? We're all about this. But sometimes things don't end happy. Sometimes we do end up weeping bitterly, and that's where we're kind of going to pick up this story. And while, uh, obviously, the next step in the process of the story, right after Jesus' arrest, of course, is the the crucifixion, the death. Uh, But here's the thing. While lots can be said about the crucifixion, like, you know, it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith and maybe the single most important event outside of arguably the resurrection that has ever happened in human history, Peter doesn't show up. He's not talked about very much. So we're going to skip over the resurrection or over the cross and the death and go right in to the resurrection. So let's refocus and recalibrate on where we find Peter's mental state. Uh, But last week we were talking about at the Last Supper, how Peter went into the Last Supper with a flawed understanding of what the Messiah actually came to do. We knew that Peter believed Jesus to be the Messiah, but he thought the Messiah was coming to lead a political revolution, right? They were under the oppression of the Roman government, and over the time, the teachers of the law has taken those Old Testament verses about the Messiah and shifted them and focused them and crafted them around the understanding that when the Messiah came, he was going to lead a political revolution. But last week... That all came crumbling down because he knew, uh, Peter knew 
that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had that flawed sense. So he, now he has to deal with this fall, fallout. He knew he, Jesus was the son of God, and yet he died. He knew that Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews, and yet he died. Jesus was going to make Peter a fisher of men, and yet he died. Jesus died, and on top of that, Peter had denied Jesus three times at the beginning of the trial when he needed him most. And that's where the resurrection happens. Uh, we, we sometimes miss the fact that the disciples were completely lost. Uh, everything they thought was going to happen just fell apart in front of them. And that's where we, and that's where we is. Peter is with John. Uh, and as Mary Magdalene runs in to tell them that Jesus's body is missing. So Peter and John are two of the disciples, probably two of the more well-known disciples, and they're together, and they're sitting there. They're lost in this confusion. They misunderstood that Jesus was coming back. So as Mary comes in, she says, hey, They've taken the body of our Lord. So Peter and John set out on what is the most epic foot race in, in the entirety of the Bible. Uh, it's the only one. But even if it wasn't, I think it would be up there. We see how John, the self-proclaimed one that Jesus loved, uh, he describes this scene. It's, you can write whatever titles you want if you're writing the book, right? So John and Peter, they set off into a full-on sprint to the, to the, to the tomb there. John gets there first, he looks inside, he sees that Jesus is gone, and Peter blasts right by him, right? In classic Peter fashion, that's the Peter we know. Run in, think second, right? John knows, hey, Jesus has been dead for three days, it's going to stinketh in there, and I'm going to become ceremonially unclean. So he kind of waits on there, but we see John, so John figures out the same information, the body's not there, but Peter pursues and tries to find the body in a different way. So again, the resurrection plays out. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And then later that night, we find John and Peter and the rest of the disciples, minus one, are locked in an upper room. They're locked in a room because here's the thing. The Messiah, who was supposed to overthrow a political revolution, just died. They were partners with that Messiah. So there's a lot of confusion going on, and they're terrified that those officials are going to come in. So as they are all gathered together, I'm sure singing hymns and being happy and not sitting there in fear and terror, they're sitting in fear and terror, Jesus comes out of nowhere. The door is locked, and he pops in, he shares a spiritual one-liner, and then he's out just as quickly. Bizarre, right? And then Jesus goes and does whatever, and then a week later... The same thing is happening, but this time that guy who wasn't there, Thomas, was there because Thomas is like, listen, I hear all 11 or 10 of you are saying that Jesus comes back, but I'm not going to believe it until I get to do exactly what you did, which is touch the, you know, the scars of the Lord. So Jesus being Jesus shows up once again, shows off the scars, and then he vanishes again. Twice he's popped in. Uh, and twice he's popped out. And so we know that in both of these times that Peter's sitting in this room. What an, but none of that, that conversation hasn't happened. On your way to church, have you ever had a fight with your spouse? In the car, you're, you get it out of it, you pull it in, and you're like, okay, we got to go to church. Let's put the brave face on. Let's go into church and act like nothing's happened. But you're sitting there not holding hands. One of you got your hands crossed. The other's clinching their bag. And it's just that tension is in the room. Or maybe you've had a, a disagreement with a coworker, but before you can really hash it out, you got to go present the next quarter's you know, plans and goals. So you're like sitting there grunting through it. That's the scenario that we find Peter in. He is fully aware of his denial. We are fully aware that Jesus is aware of that denial. And there he's popping 
popping in, he's popping out, and it's just an awkward tension. The room, the, that conversation to ha- needs to happen, but it's not. Now, again, all those other disciples were just as quick to turn their back on Jesus, but the difference is that Peter bo- bro- uh, boisterously announced, I love you more than the rest of these jabronis, and then quickly denied Jesus three times. So there's a little extra... Uh, awkwardness that has to be dealt with. And that's where we find our hero, Peter. In the shame of his denial, in the shadow of the now risen Lord, with a promise of being sent out again, Jesus came and said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and you're going to do incredible things. And Peter had spent a long time assuming and rushing to follow Jesus based off of those flawed understandings, those flawed assumptions. But now Jesus is back. Jesus has returned, and that return should have been a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration, a time of excitement, of becoming that fisher of men officially. Yet the crow of the rooster still rang out over the entire experience. Peter and Jesus were in need of a serious conversation. And guess what? They have it. That's the great thing about the Bible, is when things need to happen, they happen. So we're going to spend our bulk of our time here today uh, talking about this verse, this passage, if you will, in John 21, where Peter and Jesus get to have this conversation. So starting in verse 1 in John 21, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared to Simon, uh, appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also also known as Didymus, Nathaniel, and Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going to go out fishing, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So here we have it. We got a few guys named and a couple other guys who weren't as important enough to get their names written down. Uh, uh, But what we see is we see them, uh, Simon Peter in this, again, Jesus has popped up a couple times. They're kind of lost. And I have heard a lot said about the motivation to go fishing. And a lot of it's saying, well, the disciples completely lost faith in Jesus and now are going back to their old way of work. And that just doesn't really set well with me because that's not what happened. They know Jesus is back. They've seen Jesus. They have touched the holes in his hands and the scar in his thing. And Jesus has just told him, I'm going to send you a Holy Spirit. You're going to do incredible things. So like they're not sitting there doubting whether or not Jesus is back. They kind of understand that. They have interacted with him. Uh, but they were lost, right? Their flawed understanding of what the Messiah was going to do about that political revolution was stamped out and right in front of their eyes. Their Messiah, who was supposed to be the answer to salvation, was crucified and thrown in a tomb. And yes, he has now risen from the grave, but he keeps appearing through locked doors, dropping one-liners and hitting the road, not giving any clear instructions on what to do next. They are waiting, they are willing, they are wanting to do something. They know that something called the Holy Spirit's going to pop in, but they don't understand quite what that means, and they have no idea. And I don't believe they're sitting in this, this idea of wanting to go fishing because they are completely lost and without hope. I think they just are lost. They're confused. They don't know what to do. It's not them returning their old way of life. I think, simply put, they just needed to feel like they were doing something. Hopelessness followed by uncertainty, and sometimes you just need a win, right? 
Uh, there was a time I, I was working at Chick-fil-A, and I, uh, this is the, my th first arc of Chick-fil-A. So I was there for 10 years. I got a lot of stories. Uh, but one of them, the first time, my first leg of my uh, time there, I loved the organization. I loved Chick-fil-A. I loved the vision. I loved the mission. I loved that it was about God without shoving God in everyone's face, right? It was, it was so low-key. It was subtle, and it was beautiful. Uh, but the owner did not like me. And I, I don't know why. I was really dedicated to try and make their business successful, but they wanted their business to be successful without me. The only problem was I was never anything but helpful. So there was no reason you could you know, get rid of me. So uh, it was just an awkward attention. But uh, as I was trying to lead in that capacity, I was trying to make something better for someone who doesn't want you to make things better for them. A weird place. But uh, one of the things I loved was doing dishes. I don't know if you know this, but Chick-fil-A's are really busy, right? And they sell hand-breaded chicken. So I don't know if you know this, hand-breaded chicken is disgusting, right? Raw chicken juices, milk wash, flour, coder, it's, it's a huge mess. And at the end of the day, you have a mountain of dishes that are just gross because you've got to wash them and change them, right? So one of my favorite activities was dishes. Not because I really like dirty dishes, but because at the end of it, I would have a stack of shiny silver pans that I, my job wasn't to do dishes, it was to lead something and try and do incredible things, but there was time to time I just wanted to win, so I would do dishes. Because no matter what anyone said, if I have a stack of clean dishes, I'm winning. And I kind of think that's what's happening here with the disciples. They know that Jesus is back, and I'm sure they're assuming that Jesus is going to give them some answers. They don't have them currently, but I think they just kind of wanted to win. They needed to feel like they were in control of something. They could do something, so he grabs the boys. Uh, Simon grabs the boys. He grabs the boat, and they throw over their nets in hopes of catching a huge catch that they would get that big win. It would give them just enough motivation to wait until Jesus popped back in, and let's see what they were able to do. So they went out and got into the boat, that, but that night they caught nothing in there, right? Just need that win. Not even the trivial win do you get, right? Sometimes when we need the win the most, we come up short. When we try to force wins our way, we will often come up short. But doesn't that outcome just sound familiar? Wasn't there another time we were talking about a guy named Simon Peter who was fishing and threw his nets over and caught nothing all night? Uh, anyways, uh, in case you missed it, that was week one we talked about that. Uh, um, so they caught nothing. So, but here we are. This is where they're at. They've caught nothing, and this is where they're going. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples had not realized it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? One other translation said that would be translated as lads. We should do, lads, haven't you had any fish? It was, a familiar, it was like a, something you would say to another fisherman. No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because it was such a large number of fish. So they, we know that we, the reader, knows that this is Jesus, but the, the, the disciples do not, right? And the last time we saw Peter and the rest of those disciples in a boat, they caught nothing. Jesus said, hey, throw down the nets. And they're like, okay, if you say so, we'll do it just to prove you're wrong. But that's not the interaction here. Either they have come to trust random dudes telling them to throw their nets back in, 
Maybe there's some growth there. Maybe there's some understanding that the more you learn, the more you realize you know nothing. Or maybe it's because when you're not fishing for income and you're just fishing for fun, you're not as disappointed when you catch nothing, right? Just a thought. Anyways, so what we see there, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He had taken it off for rowing the boat and he jumped into the water. So once again, we see that John was quick on the thought, right? Quick on the discernment. He was able to more quickly realize, hey, that's Jesus. But Peter, again, dove headfirst into reaching the Lord. Peter wasn't out on the water trying to avoid Jesus. He was hoping that he would figure out the next step. He wasn't rowing in hopelessness and waiting for direction. It wouldn't be the first time that Jesus showed up with him on a boat, right? We've already talked about the calling of him. We've talked about him walking on water. Jesus typically shows up on boats, so I don't blame Simon Peter and the rest of them for jumping on a boat. And just as soon as the Lord showed up, he wasted no time at all and getting to him. He dives in and swims to the shore. He's back uh, to dropping everything to be with Jesus. The boat could not be rowed fast enough to get to the shore. He had to get there now, and I'm sure it's because it was a very long distance away. So let's read. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were about not far from the shore, about 100 yards. Okay does kind of ruin a little bit of the credibility there. It's awesome when you dive in and swim, but like, I know what you're thinking. The Bengals offense makes 100 yards look like a long distance, but 100 yards is just a football field. That's like not very far if you really think about it. So I don't know, I'm not a boat, I'm not a boater. I'm not, uh, I've never fished things. I don't know the drag of fishnet versus, uh, you know, whatnot, but I don't feel like Peter got there 20 minutes before that boat. I'm thinking a couple minutes the boat was able to get there and uh, maybe a little slower than if he would have helped, right? Um, because 100 yards really isn't that long. Anyways, that's not important. Uh, when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, uh, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Simon Peter must be buff, right? Let's just say it, right? That's a lot of fish. Uh, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And when they did, and did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He was raised from the dead. So we're, again, we've talked about it before, right? This is the third time that Peter have come face to face with Jesus. And there's the, still that little thing hanging over him, the fact that Jesus was denied three times by Peter on the day of his basically uh, uh, sentencing to his death, if you will, um, we're, we're not just talking about uh, turning their back. We're talking about outright abandonment, outright denial. And it needs to be talked about. And I'm sure Jesus, if I know Jesus, Jesus is going to be cool about it, right? Jesus is probably going to be humbly, meekly, take him off to the side and say, hey, Peter, you hurt my feelings by denying me three times. And, you know, that's probably how it's going to work because that tends to be the way Jesus operates. I mean, it's not like Peter was boasting and uh, also very public in his denial, right? Surely Jesus will 
Jesus would go. So let's keep going. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Of course, Jesus wasn't going to do it off to the side. Come on. Yes, Jesus is meek, but he also flipped the table, right? Jesus is Jesus. And, he, uh, and this is such an important thing. Remember, at the Last Supper, we talked about it earlier. Peter said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Peter, Peter boldly and dare I say arrogantly boasted that he would never turn his back on Jesus. Peter was saying in front of everyone, I love you the most. I love you more than these other people and they will turn their backs on you, but I never will. And even after Jesus said, you're going to tonight, three times, Peter did the unthinkable. He denied Jesus three times. Peter made this public. Peter put the others down to elevate himself, so therefore Jesus had to have this conversation publicly. Now back to what, uh, what is said. Ple uh, what is said here, right? Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? A couple things to note. First, Peter lost the nickname, right? We talked about it. Peter means the rock. So he got that cool nickname. Like now he's back to being Dwayne, sorry, Simon. He's back to being Simon, uh, son of John. And you'll see son of John is a very formal name, right? It's almost as if he's saying, Mr. Simon, son of John, because I don't know what their last name is. That's kind of the same thing. So you can see that not only has the cool nickname been dropped, but there's a very formal conversation happening here. And it, again, that's not unintentional. It was very uh, very intentional. But, and as we read this interaction, we will see that Jesus isn't angry. He's not over here yelling. He's not screaming. Uh, he's not berating. He's not using dramatic language, but nor is he shying away from a very difficult conversation. Peter turned his back on Jesus, and Jesus needs to know if he's going to come back. Is he going to go the right way? But more importantly, Jesus needs to know if Peter is going to think Peter is going to come back, right? This isn't just about him. That behind, uh, Jesus is asking these questions so Peter will examine himself. That behind the bravado, the act first, think later, go-getter attitude was a man who had denied his Lord. He had denied the Messiah. He has denied his friend in the single most critical moment in human history. So let's go back. We'll reread that verse. Uh, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And for the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times in front of the other disciples, Jesus is asking Simon and Peter, do you love me? This is a question that obviously Peter or Jesus knows the answers to. In fact, Simon, in his response, says, you already know the answers to this question. There are interpersonal dynamics, but they are tied up with a very real spiritual reality. 
And we can see that Peter in this story, in this particular exchange, is a little more reserved than the Peter of old, right? Again, last time they were together, he said, I love you more than everyone else. But we can see that he's not willing to say as much. He's willing to say he loves Jesus, but there's no grand declaration of that love. He's not cutting off of ears. He's not questing for power. He's not building tents or walking on water. He is sitting face to face with God. And for the first time, he is fully humbled by the reality that Peter is flawed. He isn't faithful as he wishes. He is not as faithful as he wishes he was. And he doesn't have any idea how to show his devotion. He's tired of being the lip flapper. He wants to be honest. He is Simon, son of John, and he does love Jesus, but in the most flawed way possible. This question, do you love me, is a such a loaded question coming from Jesus, especially now in the life of Peter, right? Because two things have become clear. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is not who Simon Peter thought he was going to be. He wasn't going to do the things that he thought he was going to do. There is no political revolution. There is no earthly glory. There is just love. Love for those who hate you. Love for your oppressors. Love for love at the cost of oneself. Jesus is asking, do you love me, Peter? Because if Peter loves him, then he must be ready to die for him. To love Jesus is to give everything else up. To love Jesus is to die to oneself. It's to die for the good of others. It's as if he's saying, do you love me? And if you do love Jesus, then we are to live out his commandments. Peter, if, he lo- if Peter loves Jesus, then he is to feed the sheep, feed them, care for them, lead them, and all above, above all else, die for them. The sheep being the church, being the ones that Jesus is calling Jesus is asking Peter not only to remain as a fisher of men, but he's asking to help lead his church that he's going to leave here. Jesus wants to restore Peter not just to the same role, but he wants to restore him to an elevated role of of a church leader. Simon, son of John, had to deconstruct what he thought the understanding of the Messiah was. He thought Jesus was going to be one thing. He was told by his parents, by his church leaders, that when the Messiah comes, this is what the Messiah would do. That wasn't the Messiah. It was a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding. So Peter had to deconstruct all those things. Simon, son of John, had to lay down what he was taught and what he understood and what he believed, not only about Jesus, but about Simon himself. Peter knew he loved Jesus and knew that uh, and Jesus knew that Peter loved him. They would but would Peter be willing to live out that love? But the difference we've talked about it there we've talked about there's an there's an almost an echo of the original call of Simon to this one. But there's a little difference here because in the original call Jesus said come follow me and it says they dropped everything and came, right? I think uh, into the unknown, right? Into the uncertainty and the unknown. Things are a little different here because Jesus is going to lay out the cost to Simon Peter. He's going to say exactly what it's going to cost him to follow him this time. So let's go back into this verse, starting in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, again, this is Jesus talking to Simon. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So in this moment, he's, he's sitting there and he's saying, hey, uh, Peter, now that you love me, you're going to follow me, right? And just so you know, when you follow me, you're going to be crucified, right? I know it seems like, oh, he's just going to lose his eyesight and someone's going to walk him. No, it's saying he's going to be led to death, right? Following Jesus is going to cost Peter his life. It's going to cost Peter his comfort. It's going to cost Peter everything. And the, the interaction continues. It's interesting here. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? This sermon series is about Peter, but I would have a lot to say if it was about John and the way he describes himself, right? But anyways, and when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It's the second time that Jesus has been asked to follow Peter, or rather, Peter has been asked to follow Jesus. While it's the same call, in essence, is a much deeper and a much more costly call. The cost to follow Jesus as a disciple cost Peter his livelihood. You know, he was a fisherman. He had to walk away from that. He had to leave his home. But the cost of following Jesus as the rock was to cost him his life. To become Peter was to cost him his life because Jesus has told Peter that Peter was going to do incredible things. Jesus said, you will do greater things than I did. That the sick would be healed, that the demons would be cast out. That one sermon, Peter was going to preach a sermon where a mega church is born off of one sermon. He was going to get to do incredible things, but it would cost Peter his life. Jesus is telling Peter, you'll be crucified, but you have to follow me. You have to follow me. And Peter is at this crossroads. Jesus has drawn this line in the sand, come follow me. And Peter had up to this point been working under a flawed view of faithfulness. He has leaped before he thought. He has blindly clung to the faith that Jesus would elevate him. But now Jesus has laid it out in front of Peter. He has laid it all out. Come follow me. Be a fisher of men. Tend to my sheep or lead my church and don't stop until they kill you. Peter is no longer being asked to follow Jesus blindly. The cost has been fully laid out in front of him. And as we will see in the coming weeks, Peter will answer this call. Peter is going to accept it, even though he looks back at John and he goes, hey, what about that guy? Are we all dying here on the cross or is it just me, right? What a valid and fair question. And I think we do that a lot. When God calls us, we often go, but what about him? You got something for him too, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's positive, but most of the time it's when we're called to do something a little less favorable. But Peter will answer this call because the reality is that Peter was always going to. Yes, he had denied Jesus at three times, but he had never left, let Jesus leave his heart. He met Jesus and he was called by Jesus. And the reality is, if you meet Jesus, he is undeniable. You may turn around, you may walk three paces the other way, you may end up far away, but time and time again, I have found that Jesus is just undeniable. He is loving, he is calling us back so many times. He, Simon loves Jesus and, was, and has fully experienced what it means to be far from him. 
If you've ever followed Jesus, had a little way laid back into the world, you will never stop having that craving for God. And this is Simon, son of John, fully aware his flaws of his flaws, and he is stepping into that calling of Peter. And why we, he won't be flawless along the way, he will never stop being faithful to the one that he loves to the very end. Uh, and that's a beautiful story. I love that story. Uh, again, I wish I could talk more about John and Thomas and all those guys. Uh, for me, it was a fun uh, experience because I've read that story so many times, but I often read it through the lens of everything, right? You're trying to see the whole big picture, but when you're focused, I have to keep it about Peter. We're talking about Peter. It really uh, changed a lot of those interactions, and you could see the true depth uh, understanding of what Peter went through. But here's the question I always ask. So what? That's a great story about Peter and about Peter's understanding of Jesus and all that, but what does it mean for us? What can we learn about, uh, about ourselves and about Jesus for ourselves? Uh, as I move into this, uh, the band, you guys are welcome to come back up and get ready to lead us back into some worship. Um, but what, what does it mean for us is the question I ask. I think there's a few different things uh, that I really wanted to share. The first one is... Um, that when we turn our backs on God, God doesn't turn his back on us. Uh, as we have seen, Simon, uh, we'll call him Peter again, right? He's, he's back to being Peter. Peter saw Jesus. He, he denied Jesus three times, but Jesus never revoked that call of Simon, right? He never said, okay, you denied me, you're out. You don't get to come back. You don't get to fish for men. You don't get to be anything. That was never the position, never the place, never the thing. He, while Simon show, turned his back on Jesus, Jesus never turned his back on him. The earthly disappointments of Peter made a riff and made a trouble. Um, but Jesus never turned his back. It's beautiful. That leads into the second one. And there's always a chance to turn back to Jesus, Right? So the first one is, well, we may turn away, God never does. And the question is, do you follow him? The second one is that God doesn't turn, uh, there's always a chance to turn back. The beauty of it is though Simon Peter turned his back, he denied Jesus three times, Jesus was still cooking him fish on, this, on the shore, right? He wasn't just waiting for him to turn back, he was actively preparing the way for Simon Peter, when we turn back to God, even if it's for a season, maybe it was a short season, maybe it's been years, when you turn back to God, you may find that God's not just waiting there. He's waiting there to elevate you to a different way. Maybe we failed in ministry. Maybe we failed in just being a basic disciple, right? God and Jesus are sitting there waiting and asking, will you follow him? There's incredible things uh, to be had there. And the last thing is, God calls each of us to the same thing. And it's to die for Jesus. I, I know that's not always the more popular thing. You know, we're supposed to talk about, hey, we're come to Jesus, you'll find everlasting life, which is true, but also it will cost you your life. And it may cost you your life. You may live to be an old, old, old person, right? Uh, as, the, as Peter thinks is what Jesus is saying about John. Or you may, it may cost you your life on a cross. It doesn't matter. Through the good, through the bad, through the easy, through the difficult, we are called to turn back because uh, we are each called to die for Jesus. Uh, so we're going to move into a time of worship here. Um, and a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of we'll lead into a song and then we'll move back into a, a time of ministry or whatnot. Um, but today we're going to do it a little different. I'm going to pray.
Uh, and then I'll, I'll have a one quick thing. I'll share a little quickness and uh, we'll be back. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you. God, I thank you for the life of Simon Peter. I thank you that you don't take your call away. That you never stop calling for us. You never stop preparing the way for us. That there, all it ever takes is for us to just get over ourselves. And whether that be hard or easy, God, I just pray that that's where we're at today. That you have never turned your back and you never will. I pray for our repentance. Uh, I pray for that you will continue to, to show us your way, your, your truth, your life. And we just say, come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so as I was saying, uh, we normally do ministry time. Uh, it would kind of break up the worship a little bit, but today we're just going to worship all the way through. Uh, because I want to worship, to be honest. Uh, I just feel like let's, let's do it now. Let's call. If you need prayer, we're here. Uh, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe when we uh, preach the gospel, when we tell about Jesus, when we say, hey, turn back. God's waiting for you. All you need to do is come up, right? Uh, that's what I, I want to offer to you. I'm here. We got a few other people who will pop up and pray if they need be. But if you are in a place where you, uh, you feel like you've turned your back on God, I invite you to turn back. You don't need me. You don't need another person. But sometimes a little of accountability and a little smell of fish can help. So we just pray, uh, we offer to you to come on up at any point through these last few songs. Um, you don't have to stay away. Jesus is asking each of us, come follow me. Will you follow me?